you done now? Oh, Brian, what have you done now? Now, 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 And welcome to Back to the Future, the podcast, the only podcast looking back in time at the greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I am Brad Gilmore, and I'm joined by my friend in time. He is a lover of Christmas Vacation, but not of Home Alone, Norman Benford. Norm, how you doing? I am doing great, Brad. Uh, we were just talking about some uh, unseasonably Christmas movies, and yes, I'm not a disliker of Home Alone, but Christmas Vacation, I put head and shoulders above almost every other Christmas movie out there. Here's the thing, though, is that the sequel to Home Alone was way better than the sequel to Christmas Vacation. Vegas the sequel vacation. to Christmas Vacation. Well, now, actually, now, you can go either way, or you can go Cousin Eddie's Christmas Vacation. Right in the which in their cousin, which was also terrible. Yeah, they were both bad. So like, what well, you know, pick your poison here. It's like the presidential election. But um, I think I think that the Home Alone Lost in New York is a way better sequel than either one of those. Was there a Home Alone three, or am I misremembering? Oh, there's that? there's five Home Alones. What are you talking about? There are five. How many of those were were the, were those direct to video, or were they all theatrical? Well, let's see. I think that there's two with Macaulay Culkin. Which were in theaters, and then there was a third one, which I believe was it was directed by John Hughes, and it was in in theaters as well, starring a different kid, different story, and then Kevin McAllister comes back in Home Alone Four, which was a TV movie, I believe, and then another kid takes over as Kevin McAllister in Home Alone Five, which was a direct to on demand. Ah, welcome to Home Alone, the podcast, everybody. You know, I wouldn't mind a Home Alone podcast because I love Home Alone. The lovely cheese pizza all to myself is coming to me, but we have to talk about my favorite film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. Uh, we have a great season three so far. We've gone, we had a tour of the DeLorean facility. We've talked about Back to the Future part three in our kickoff episode, and we've had two episodes discussing the evolution of the DeLorean, the, the most classic movie car of all time. I actually got into a battle the other day with somebody who said the Batmobile is the most classic movie car of all time, but I disagree. I, I have to disagree because there's several Batmobiles, but there's only one DeLorean time machine, and I think it is the definitive movie car, but we've got to talk about that. But now we're going to talk about something that has taken place past the trilogy. Um, you know, We're going to be talking about the animated series here uh, eventually on this show, but um, – Recently, last year, 2015, where every day it seemed like there was something new coming out about Back to the Future, um, a big announcement was made by the writer, co-writer of Back to the Future, Bob Gale, and he talked about – he made the announcement at San Diego Comic-Con. Why don't you talk about what that announcement was, Norm? 
Well, that announcement was for the first time in decades, really decades, there was going to be new uh, Back to the Future content available for pinheads and Back to the Future fans to consume uh, via IDW Comics. And just just a little backstory on IDW Comics, if you will uh, allow a comic nerd to wax poetic for a Go minute. Go ahead. This is a this this is a company that has really made their name uh, by licensing properties and putting comics out there. They have been very very successful over the. I mean, they've been around for a, uh, at least a decade, but really have risen to prominence in the last, I would say, five to six years. Uh, when they started picking up a lot of Hasbro licenses, like Transformers, G.I. Joe, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is not a Hasbro license, but that's another book that's been incredibly successful for them, as well as Ghostbusters. And we'll be talking a little bit more about Ghostbusters later. But uh, IDW just inked another big deal with Hasbro. Hasbro is rolling forward with this idea to create a Hasbro cinematic universe and this could get kind of weird, but it could also be cool of kind of these 80s toy properties that they haven't done a lot with. And that includes G.I. Joe, Micronauts, which is, you know, has a huge, huge legacy of comic history, um, Visionaries. And then kind of the big deal for old school comic book fans is they're bringing back Rom Space Knight that had kind of a legendary run Marvel Comics in the. Uh, I would say late seventies, early eighties. Uh, you know, we'll have to hire a fact checker to figure that out. But are you familiar with Rom at all, Brad? I, I, um, I've heard of Rom. I, I, I saw something about Rom one time before, and uh, it was it was some guys discussing, you know, the 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 obsc- their their favorite obscure comic book characters, and one of them chose Rom. Now I do know Rom though. Wasn't he big as a toy? Like a lot of people yes. love the Rom toys. It was actually based on a toy, and hey, based got, on a toy. There you, you go. Know, yes, if you got like four hundred bucks, you can go pick yourself up a nice ROM on eBay. Still to this day, but ROM was just kind of this big robot that had a couple little gimmicks to him. Like he had a a light up gun, and I believe he had some kind of rope that he could use to you know ascend to a higher level. But Marvel licensed that character and then wrote. I mean, I want to say it was damn near 100 issues of a ROM comic book, which, you know, how many comic books go to 100 issues these days? It's it's sadly almost unheard of, but they created this rich history for this character that they didn't own. And then when Marvel and the creator of ROM kind of went their separate ways, they, they could not reference the ROM character in any way, shape, or form, but could still write about all of the characters that were created first in a Marvel book. So ROM has kind of been... You know, this bugaboo on people's backs for a long time. It's like, are we ever going to see a ROM comic again? Are we ever going to see ROM? And they're like, no, no, it's never going to happen, never going to happen. Well, guess what? It's happening. And some of us are pretty excited about that. Are we going to see a... Are we are we going to see a rom com? Sorry, I had to make that joke. It was just right there. I heard myself. I heard myself saying rom comic over again, and I was just rolling my internal eyes at myself. So (laughs) rom com. They're coming to us uh, to a theater near you soon. But you know, so I mean, there are a lot of cool things now. I know I don't want to get too off track here, but I think we're going to anyway. Um, You being the big comic book historian, you seem to be. Um, I recently learned something about Marvel Comics that I did not previously know. That the Men in Black was a Marvel Comics property? 
I believe it may have been an Epic comic property, which Epic was a line of comics that Marvel did a while ago where they were creator-owned properties. Like, Men in Black were never in the, the proper, you know, Marvel get Universe? 616 Marvel Universe, oh, man. which would be, yeah, I know. Welcome to the uh, 616 cast. But the Men in Black, they, they were always a creator-owned property, and Marvel had kind of a little boutique publishing wing that they allowed people to put out their own work. So the Men in Black may have come through that, but I'm not 100% sure of that. That would require uh, a little on-the-fly research that I am in no mood to do at the moment. But <laughs> Well, Men, I, I Men just Black find it interesting. Cre- it was always a creator-owned property. Yeah. Men in Black, uh, interesting, interesting film. But so, so many things um, having to do with with this uh, IDW comics. You know, like you said, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Transformers, blah 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 blah. Right. Um, and, and it was exciting when Bob Gale made this announcement because here we are. We've been clamoring. What you can probably answer this question, Norm? What's the one thing every fan of Back to the Future always wanted? They always asked everybody. Is there going to be a Back to the Future 4, right? And, and I believe um, uh, Biff, Biff uh, what's Biff's real name? I forgot Biff's real name. What's his real uh, Tom name? Tom F. Wilson. Tom, Tom, Tom F. F. Wilson, yeah. Um, I believe Biff had, you know, have you ever heard the, the Back to the Future song by Biff? Tom F. Wilson? Uh, I have. I have not. I've heard of it, but I've not heard. Oh man, you got you got you got to listen to it. But you know, and he even says, "Back to the Future Four, not happening." You know, stop asking me the question. That's kind of how the song goes, and uh, that's the one thing we always wanted. So when Bob Gale makes this announcement to get to this roundabout way of uh, talking about this, when Bob Gale makes this announcement at San Diego Comic Con last year that there's going to be a comic book series of Back to the Future, obviously we were all all really happy about it and the um there was going to be an ongoing series the first five issues were going to go under the story arc you know called untold tales and alternate timelines um so what what was the what was the goal of this series uh, you think norm just to continue the back to the future series and feed the fans with more stories well, I think uh, that's that's a, obviously a big part of it. Obviously, the number one goal is for everybody to, uh, to you know to to ply their trade and make a little money here, which that that's fair. But uh, these these untold tales and alternate timelines that was basically their way of saying, hey, we're we're going to tell some stories about these characters, and these stories they might take place in the movie continuity or. They might not, which is very, very easy to kind of explain off within the world of Back to the Future, you know, where something happens and you go back in time and, you know, something little happens and all of a sudden you split the timeline. Well, those timelines could continue to split theoretically over and over again. So there's really uh, an infinite, infinite kind of uh, just story material available out there. And they can tell these kind of one-off stories and say, oh, hey, that was just in an alternate timeline that wasn't part of the movie. But they also, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, there there have been some stories in these comic books so far that are very firmly in, entrenched, I would say, into the, the movie continuity. So it, it's kind of the best of both worlds. It gives them the freedom to tell... Uh, kind of these crazy stories that are not anchored by continuity. And it's like, well, you can't tell that story because it contradicts something that happens in the film. But it also gives them the opportunity to kind of flesh out these characters that, you know, we, we grew to new and love over, you know, six odd 
the hours of movie content. So, you know, I, I, I call that a win. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, though, but wasn't there a Back to the Future comic book before? There was. There was uh, uh, Harvey Comics, which is the company that publishes, like, Richie Rich and Casper. And, you know, they, they publish primarily children's books. In 1991, they got the license to make a Back to the Future comic book. But it was primarily based on the animated series at the time, which was kind of the, the, the new Back to the Future content that was being put out at the time. So it was an art style that very much mimicked the animated series and it actually lasted seven issues over the course of like two or three years and the first four issues were strictly adaptations of animated series episodes and then there were three more issues of new content which i have to admit i did not know until i was doing a little research and given that i'm gonna have to go look for those last three issues because i'm kind of interested to read those yes and again as i was yeah, as, as I was kind of digging in and doing a little research, the one thing that stood out to me as really interesting as the, the guy who wrote all seven of these issues is a prolific comic book creator, uh, Dwayne McDuffie. This, this guy had a career that, that spanned years and years and years, and he created Static Shock. For DC Comics, he was a, a big part of getting the Milestone comic universe, which was a, a universe of primarily African-American characters. He was very influential in getting that off the ground. And then later he went on to just a, a great career as a TV writer. He he wrote almost 70-some episodes of the Justice League cartoon. He wrote uh, a Scooby-Doo revival from a few years back. So this is a guy that had a really, really great career. And I was surprised to find out that he wrote all seven of those original Harvey Back to the Future comics. So again, just kind of interesting. Makes me want to go back and maybe give him another chance. Yeah, maybe you need to rethink about it uh, there, Norm. You you don't judge a comic book by its cover? I don't know. Um, But let's talk about here, uh, uh, because we want to talk about the first two issues here today on the show. And and I know we're kind of going a little – we're going to go a little long today, but that's okay. Um, But who is in charge? Is Bob Gale the one who's in charge of writing the stories? I don't know if he's so much in charge. He – I think he has final responsibility for for plotting, which is kind of how you know he he comes up with the ideas and then he works with a writing partner and the writing partner will flesh out a lot of the dialogue and things like that. Like Bob Bob Gale is most likely not writing the words that you're reading in 95% of the word balloons in the Back to the Future comic books. He probably gives a plot outline and then works with a a collaborative partner, which, by the way, he has some great writers working with him on these books. And then they kind of will work with the artist to flesh out the dialogue and how it relates to uh, the the images that are being drawn by the artist. So he is definitely kind of a, a guiding force to this series, but he's working with two really talented writers, one by the name of John Barber, who has really written some of the best Transformers comic books ever. In the past few years, uh, this, I mean, also, hey, big nerd alert, I'm also a Transformers fan, but he, he's putting out he's putting out comic books that are almost universally acknowledged as some of the best Transformers content ever put out, period. And that's talking about cartoon, movies, comic books, 
everything. It, it's just, it's very well written. And then the other person that uh, Bob's working with is a guy by the name of Eric Burnham, and he writes uh, a lot of Ghostbusters comics for IDW, which again are very respectful of the franchise and just just excellent books to read if, if you're a Ghostbusters fan. So they've, they've got good writers on this series. So I'm um, so we're kind of we're confident in in the writer's abilities because I don't know a lot about comic book writers. I'm not a I'm not an avid comic book reader whatsoever. Um, the, you know these are actually the first comic books I've read in maybe <sighs> decade or more maybe. Um, so I mean it's been a while since I've uh, cracked open the pages of a comic book. So I, I was really interested to read these and, and it, particularly in the first the first issue because. Um, We've discussed it before, and I remember in, in season one going in-depth with a discussion with Kasim Gaines, who was the author of We Don't Need Roads and Making of the Back to the Future trilogy, which I just listened to uh, on Audible, and it's fantastic in audio form as well. Um, but we went into a conversation, and I asked him, I was like, you know, where do you think Doc and Marty met? You know, where do you think? And he referenced some that, uh, that, that Gail said about you know, Marty being a rock and roller, needing a guitar amp, and Doc being the only one that had one in the neighborhood, and that's how they became friends. Um, I thought it was a little, you know, uh, you know, a little just too easy right there. You're kind of pulling at the low-hanging fruit there. But I, I accepted it, and we were told that the first comic book was going to tell us how Marty met Emmett. Isn't that right? Yes, and you know that that's what they were talking about right out of the gate when they announced this at San Diego Comic Con. They they're like issue 1, we're going to, you know, we're going to tell a story that people have been asking to hear for a long time. So, I mean, I guess if you want to, we can just kind of roll into issue 1 here and it just kind of goes without saying if there are pinheads out there who haven't read these comic book yet, these comic books yet. Number 1, you definitely should because they're they're good books and number 2, they're will be some spoilers as we kind of move forward here. So if you're okay with that, we're glad to have you along for the ride. If you'd rather not, then get yourself out there and pick up these comics or the trade paperback that's being released at the end of this month. Read and then come back and listen to the rest of the show. Because if you don't want to be spoiled, uh, that's about to happen. Money! Money! Spoiler alert! Money! Sorry, that was, a bad, that was my bad Doc impression. I, 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 I could do better. But anyway, let's get into it. So I've, how heard, do, I've heard worse. Well, yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, let's get into it. How does this first comic book start? It starts with uh, an open in Hill Valley, right? Yes. So we are uh, issue one, story one. And just uh, something I probably should have mentioned earlier, but I didn't, is each issue of the comic book is two stories written by Bob and a partner and then drawn by a different artist. And, you know, comic book companies do that so they can kind of keep up with a schedule because it's just, you have two people working on the same thing at the same time. And it makes it much easier to kind of keep in that 30 day rotation that people are used to. So we are with issue one, story one, when Marty met Emmett and this is a story that very much feels like it's in movie continuity. It's, it's going to answer that age-old question, when did these two finally meet and become friends? And it was written, of course, by Bob Gale and John Barber. 
and the penciler was Brent Schoonover, and I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but if I'm not, I apologize, Brent. And Brent is a guy who has done a lot of comic book work, but he also does a lot of commercial art for uh, corporations, advertising, has a really great uh, website, very talented guy. So, yes, we are issue one, story one. We are in Hill Valley, and this is after Marty has returned to the future, but not before the time train was built and Doc and Clara and their sons are able to begin traveling through time again. So it's a scene we showed Doc working, you know, presumably in his blacksmith shop on a very rudimentary flux capacitor because he's trying to rebuild that. And he has some equipment there. And I just thought it was kind of funny. The equipment that he's using is only able to generate 0.04 gigawatts, which, as we all know, is simply not going to get the job done. No, it's not enough. You need 1.21, and and this is what you get. But this was a big problem about Back to the Future Part Three, you know, and, and you know, in Back to the Future Part Three, not about it in it. And uh, yeah. we were kind of left at the end wondering how did Doc, um, you know, create? And we you know, obviously we're going to get to it when we get to our finale of the season. But we were kind of left wondering how did Doc, you know, uh, uh, create that that uh, time machine train, and this shows him working on it. So it kind of really picks up on the heels of the last film. Yes, yes, it does. And and that's nice, and that's why I said this really feels like it's it's firmly entrenched in movie continuity. So uh, Jules and Vern, who are, of course, Doc and Claire's sons, they come into the barn workshop, and Doc starts telling them a story uh, about the, the future. And the, the, kind of the funny thing about this, and it's not the last time it's talked about in the comic book, is Doc Brown basically admits to being an arsonist and burning down his family's estate for the insurance money, which I thought was kind of funny. And and like I said, it's it's not like, oh, well, maybe that's not what they meant. You, you get a little further into the series, and he's like, yeah, I pretty much burnt the house down. So I, I just thought that was kind of funny. And, it you know, I guess – Technically, it's illegal, but it just reinforces that. Hey, you know, Doc Brown, he's a crazy dude, and he's just going to do what he's going to do. And uh, so he starts telling this story that takes place in 1982, which would be three years before the events of the first Back to the Future movie. And the scene kind of opens with Marty sitting in his garage and practicing his guitar, and who should show up but uh, Needles, of course. And he it needs a piece of equipment for his guitar amp for a show that night. And so he just takes Marty's. He says he's going to borrow it, but really he's just going to take it. And Marty intervenes and tries to prevent him from stealing this piece of equipment with some kind of tube for the guitar amp. And in doing so, the tube gets dropped and, and it breaks. So Needles, being Needles, takes Marty's guitar and says, you know, if you don't get me that part, by the the time for our show, then he's just going to keep the guitar. So Marty, being kind of you know not not an alpha dog at this point in his life, he shuffles off to the music store to buy this part that he needs to give to Needles so he can get his guitar back. And as it turns out, he cannot buy this part because every single one in the inventory was purchased by ELB Industries, of course, M and L Brown. And 
for some reason, the guy who owns the music shop gives Marty ELB Enterprises address, and Marty takes off to see if he might be able to negotiate some kind of deal to get this part that he needs. So uh, what are you thinking of the story so far, Brad? Well, you know, I like it. You know, I mean, Needles is is a nice, you know, uh, antagonist, uh, the, the preventative force that's keeping Marty from fulfilling his rock and roll destiny. Um, so I, I, I do like it. Um, and, and to me, it's kind of a logical thing. I mean, how many people have you met just out of necessity? Out of you needed something, you went somewhere, and you met somebody because of it. So, I mean, it is kind of a natural and, and logical way of, of these two, you know, crossing paths. This one decision on this one day, Marty needs this part, and it's only sold by, or it was all bought by one guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of the setup. And uh, Marty is heading over to the what's left of the Brown Estates to see if he can secure this part. And it, as it turns out, uh, Doc has a security system in place that's booby-trapped to issue an electric shock to anybody who tries to use it. And Marty figures out that there's some kind of code, so he's able to bypass that. And he you know, passes a couple other trials, which we won't go into detail because you know, we want there to be some new content for people who are out there and reading it. And he eventually ends up inside Doc's place, and he activates this kind of Rube Goldberg trap, and he finds himself uh, hanging upside down, ensnared in a net, a la Chewbacca from Return of the Jedi. <laughs> However... That's that's really it, and he doesn't have an R two unit to cut him out. Yeah, so no he resorts unit. to no BD uses either. his sca- no. He uses his skateboard to get himself out of the trap and uh, disengage it, and he's immediately uh, mauled by Einstein. Not really mauled. Einstein's a friendly dog. He just jumps on him and starts licking him. And here we have the first appearance of Doc Brown and Marty, kind of sharing the screen at the same time, and. Doc asks Marty if he's here for the job, and they kind of go back and forth. It's like, oh, I, I need an assistant. And, and he's like, but there really wasn't a job, but I just asked you that to see if maybe you wanted to work with me. And this this is where I'm, I'm starting to kind of scratch my temple a little bit and go, eh, this is this is starting to fall down a little bit for me. And then as it turns out, the only reason Doc purchased this the whole inventory of these parts is he needed the box that it came in because it was the right size for an experiment that he was conducting at the time. I believe it was the static-o-matic electric hair chair. So I don't know how a cardboard box plays into that, but it did. It found a way. It found a way to play into it. Um, So this is kind of the second half of the story where, you know, he finally does run run into Doc. Um, you know, and, and, and the box is, you know, like you said, it's, it's the size for some, whatever experiment that he's running, but finally they run into each other and they meet. Um, do you think, um, that this is the best way? And that's, I mean, that's almost essentially kind of how it ends. I mean, that's kind of the end of the book. It's, it's kind of a short little quick story. Am I right? So, um, um, do you think this is the best way after, 30 years, um, going on 31 years, by the way. But do you think that it was the best way after 30 years of questions, how do these two meet? Was this a satisfying uh, uh, result for you? Was this a satisfying answer to how these two met? 
Well, uh, in, a, in a word, no. It, it really didn't land for me. And I did not dislike it. But it's, this is kind of one of those things we've been waiting for. And who knows? Maybe that was the story that Bob Gale had in his head from the get-go. And he just decided to roll with it. And But it just... When two characters like this that, that go on to have such incredible adventures, I just think there could have been some better way to have this first meeting. It it fell a little bit flat for me. And again, I did not dislike it. Uh, but my ex, and this may be a personal thing. My expectations may have been raised so high that just about anything would disappoint me. But I, I was wanting a little bit more from this first part of the story. Well, you know, I kind of look at it like this. Like, um, I remember a few years back watching a a uh, Seinfeld roundtable. The show Seinfeld, obviously, everyone knows Seinfeld, uh, the biggest TV sitcom of all time, maybe the biggest TV show of all time. And all the principal cast members were doing this roundtable, uh, uh, joined by Larry David, co-creator, writer, and star of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, of course. And they started talking about the finale because the finale of Seinfeld is one of those much debated kind of things like was this a good finale many people say it wasn't and i think it was either jerry or larry made the uh made the observation that i think it was jerry he said you know everybody had their own idea of how it was gonna end that was my bad jerry seinfeld impression but he goes everyone had their own idea of how the finale was gonna end right and the the story they wrote in in their head is always going to be better than the story that you put on the screen, or in this case, on the page. So I think telling the story finally, honestly, was just a lose-lose situation. There's no way you tell a story that's going to uh, satisfy everyone who's wondered this question for 30 years. There's just no way you can do it. To me, is this a logical way these two meet? Oh, yeah, sure. Is it a, a, a great story of how they met? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm not a fan of it at all. Uh, you know, I found myself almost skimming through the pages of this short comic book just to get to the end to figure it out. You know, um, I don't think for 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 this to be the first issue of a comic book series, it sets your comic book series off in the best way possible. Now they do get better as they go along, but to me, this one I got to give. And, you know, and I know I see that you're ranking these out of five. I got to give this a one out of five. Now, and I'm just ranking individual story at this point, not the book as a whole. Yeah, I, I gave it a, I gave it a two point five, and I also was not a big fan of the art for this story. I thought it, it, it was just a, uh, it was a little too scratchy. It was very scratchy. Case. I was I, about to say the same thing. Very scratchy. I, I like. Kind of cleaner, and I'm not even like uh, into hyper realistic illustrations. I I I favor kind of uh, comic art that has a little bit of a cartoonish or an animated look to it. I like that. This, like I said, this this just felt a little a little scratchy and a little dirty to me. Not to the point of detracting from the story, but you know, not. Not a good first foot in the door for the Back to the Future comic, unfortunately. I'm putting you on the spot, Norm. What was your idea, or had did you ever have an idea of how the how these two met? Honestly, no. I, I I did not have an idea. I was I was just looking forward to something a little bit more. This just seemed a little bit too contrived and a little bit. 
I don't know. It felt like they rushed through it. I think maybe had they been given the benefit of a full comic book to tell the story, they could have fleshed it out a little bit more. But no, I don't. I don't have my own idea. I can. I can just say that I was not satisfied by this. Although I will say, just uh, to call back to one of your earlier points, that you know, talking about the Seinfeld finale and people have an idea in their mind about what they're expecting. I will say, to counter that, the end of Revenge of the Sith with Anakin and Obi-Wan fighting on Mustafar, the lava planet, I waited for 30 years to see that fight, and I was not disappointed one bit. That was excellent. That lived up to the expectation. That was an out-of-the-park home run, that that final battle scene between Anakin and Obi-Wan. So it can be done. Well, but I think the fundamental difference there is that you knew there was a fight that took place, right? So we know that a fight is happening. We know we're going to see a battle between these two characters. But the difference between that and a finale of Seinfeld or explaining Doc and Marty is that we don't know anything else. We don't know how they link past. We don't know what the story going into it is going to be. With Anakin and Obi-Wan, you had a sense of it because you saw two previous movies that kind of led you to it. You saw really five previous movies, you know, or you could say four previous movies that led you to it or the three or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So you kind of had a – you kind of knew where it was going. But with Doc and Marty, there was never an inclination at all of where these two met ever. Ever. We just know that Strickland was upset at Marty for hanging out with the crackpot scientist. And and to me, yeah. that's the difference. And I, I guess to be fair, that they were kind of in a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Like if this first story where they had met had even the slightest inkling of – time travel or stuff like that, people would just be shitting all over it. It's like, you know, how could that be how they met? And, you know, the, it, it would it would have uh, spoiled kind of that first foray into time. So I'm, I'm tempering my dissatisfaction a little bit, but still, uh, I don't know. But also... The, the name, the, the, the arc, the overarching theme of this whole comic book series is untold tales and alternate timelines. So this might not even be this. This might be one instance of how they met. There's a zillion instances. You know, I think that's kind of like with, with with the future. Is the future? Uh, I don't know. I don't want to get into this big diatribe about you know the future is relative and and I guess the past therefore is relative as well. But I think that. This could be just one of many ways they met because this is an alternate timeline. It's an else world. We don't know. Is this the right way? We don't know, Norm. But one thing I do know is that we're actually out of time for this episode. We were trying to get to two of them, but we just talked so damn much, Norm, you and I, that we went over time. But why don't we promise the fans next week we'll do two and three. I know that's kind of getting off to a weird start, but we're going to do comics two and three. Is that okay? Is that okay with you, Norm? Well. Actually, we have we haven't even finished comic one. There's two there's two stories in comic. Oh one. yeah, what am and I thinking? What am I thinking? Man, we're so, so do, we're kind of running. Do we want to put? We think. What do you think, Norm? You tell me. I say let's let's put our heads down and plow through the second story of comic one and call it a day. And uh, because it, it is a shorter comic, and I'm not going to have a lot of complaining to do about this story because I loved this one. Okay, why don't so you our, our, let's let's do this? And I know 
Uh, I don't want to skip over anything important. So how about we put our heads down. You give us the uh, the overall synopsis of the story. I know you have your uh, the notes written out. I'm looking at our show notes now. Uh, let's go. Let's get through this, and then we'll discuss after you finish the reading of the general story. Okay. I will I will plow through this. This is issue one, story two, and it's called Looking for a Few Good Scientists. And this is, again, written by Bob Gale, partnering with Eric Burnham, the other comic writer attached to this project. And the, the art is by a creator called Dan Shoning. And uh, before I kind of roll into the plot, I will just say this art is just hitting on all cylinders for me. This is exactly what... I want from a Back to the Future comic book. Stylized, cartoonish character characters, but that still retain enough of a realistic look. I just love this. This is this guy is a regular penciler on the Ghostbusters book, and he's he's absolutely amazing because he's always uh, slipping in cameos in the Ghostbusters books. Just you know, as an aside, and I know we're running long. If you pay attention in the Ghostbusters books, you will see the Blues Brothers. You will see Chevy Chase. You will see many many of those stars contemporaries from their SNL days just as background characters or supporting characters. Great stuff. But anyway, back to the future. Issue one, part two. And this is a story of Doc Brown whenever he's teaching at the California Institute of Technology or Caltech, for those of you who prefer shorter names. And he storms into... Uh, presumably this is some dean or some professor, and he's he's very angry and he's heated because he knows some of the best and brightest professors on campus, or doctors, I guess I should say, are being recruited for this secret project. And he wants to know, damn it, why isn't he part of this project? And so the the president of the university informs him that it's kind of the secret project. Yes, it's a thing, but he hasn't been selected because... It involves a in-home interview just to kind of get a psych profile on these people that they're pulling into the project, which lets you know right off the bat this project must be pretty serious if they're doing psych evals on the people they're bringing in. And the president said, I just didn't want to send anybody to your apartment because they just might get the wrong impression, which leads you to believe that, you know, maybe Doc's a hoarder or he just doesn't clean or, you know, they don't want to send people from the outside world into Doc's horrible apartment. But he uh, presses the issue and he said, I'll figure something out. So uh, the president of the university sets up a meeting between Doc and these two representatives. We later learned they're from the military to talk to him about the project. And it shows them walking into this this very clean, beautiful house. And as it turns out, Doc basically borrowed his landlord's house for the in-home interview so they wouldn't see his apartment and he could get vetted through to the project. So, however, this being a comic book, uh, the gig is up, he gets caught, and the the military guys leave, and Doc is just really disappointed that he blew his chance to be part of this project. So he kind of uh, forlornly wanders around town a bit, and then he returns to his apartment and declares, Great Scott, in a big, bold word balloon, because the military officials are there, and also there in his apartment is J. Robert Oppenheimer. There's a name drop for you. That's a guy who was head of the Manhattan Project, which we have talked about on this show before, because it was Bob Gale always said that he quietly 
likely assumed that at some point Doc Brown did work on the Manhattan Project. And so we see Doc's apartment, and Oppenheimer invites him to be part of the Manhattan Project, and of course accepts, and he's ecstatic. And really, to tell you the truth, Doc's apartment wasn't that bad. It's just a little messy with uh, some weird stuff hanging on the wall, but he's a, he's a crackpot scientist. What's his apartment supposed to look like? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, I, I did, I did like though how this story, and I, and I know there's there's more to come, but I did, I do like you know you mentioned before that we talked about Doc's involvement in the Manhattan Project. Uh, that was always kind of the the lingering uh, idea or the uh, the general consensus that we accepted that he was a part of the Manhattan Project. That's where he kind of got all of these, maybe some of his finances or maybe some of his expertise in creating certain things and maybe even why the Libyans solicited him to per, to build them a bomb because he might have had some, an instance in the uh, or a hand in the uh, Manhattan Project. Although I think it is established earlier in this book that the finances came because Doc is a dirty, dirty insurance frauding arsonist. Or, or that. Or that, you know. But, uh, insurance fraud. What, what, what's kind of interesting is as, as the, the story ends, Doc pulls out a jello mold to share with uh, the military officials and Oppenheimer to celebrate his joining the project. And the jello mold is a. An orange jello mold with a sliced mushroom floating in the middle. And so for those of you at home who don't know exactly what the Manhattan Project is, the Manhattan Project is the study that eventually led to the creation of some of the first nuclear bombs ever used. And, of course, how do those go off with a big mushroom cloud? So I thought that was a really, really cool kind of you know nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We know what's going on here. I yeah. really appreciated that. No, I mean it, it was pretty. It was pretty cool. Um, I, I did like that little minor detail as well. And fun fact for all you kiddos out there who might not know, the Manhattan Project had nothing to do with Manhattan. No, not a lot we of people. Can, know that. However, no, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, we they can, they named however, it. They named it the Manhattan Project to intentionally throw off anybody who found out about it. And they would think that it was in Manhattan. However, we can confirm, and history has borne out, that it was, in fact, a project. We do know that. We know that it was some sort yes. of project. We know that. It was, definitely, it was definitely a project. We know it was definitely a project. The, the location to be determined, but a project was had. So, Norm, what's your overall analysis of, of the second story of book two? I'm sorry. I completely forgot there was a second one. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh I, I give this a four out of five. Wow. I, I love this. And for, for something for me to get a five out of five, it's going to have to be, you know, a classic. And I'm not calling this a classic, but I just really like this. The, the writing is tight. The art is gorgeous. I want more of this. More, more, more. Four out of five. You know, I, I got to give it a, a a three out of five, and, and I'll say it because I did like the artwork more. Um, now I'm kind of learning from you what to look for in these comic books now that I'm thinking about it. Um, I did like the artwork more. Um, it's just I guess I, I'm a little bit spoiled, and I got to get used to reading comic books because they're made to be short stories, and they're not made to be lengthy ones. And, and the thing about 
Back to the Future that I always loved was everything paid off and, you know, screenwriting 101 is always what I call that first movie because it sets everything up um, and it pays it all off. You know what I mean? And to me, there's not a lot of setup and payoff or that is if there is, it's really quickly. And to me, it's a little thing that's hard for me to get into these comic books fully about, you know, Uh, but a three out of five, I think, is a strong standing. It's a it's a huge improvement from the first part of their story, which I gave a one. So um, I definitely (laughs) think that this was a an upgrade. Now, I I agree. I, I I, I can't gush about this enough. Of, of all of the Back to the Future comics that I've read so far, and I'm, I'm several issues in, this is still some of my favorite stuff. Just just really enjoyed it. Yeah, man. I, and, and we're going to get more into the series. Um, how many comics are they up to now? I want to say issue seven just came out. Yeah, there's, there's two issues or five issues of the alternate timelines and then – Two issues of the next kind of ongoing story arc that's called, I want to say, the Continuity Conundrum. I have not read those yet. I've read the first five issues. And I, I think with time, you will be able to grow a little bit more of appreciation for the, the shorter storytelling form. Because there, there were many times, it doesn't happen so much these days, but comic books, comic book creators told a whole story. I mean, if you can believe this, beginning you know, middle and end on a single page. And that, that is kind of a lost art to be able to tell a story that actually holds up and makes sense in a handful of panels on one page. So, you know, I, I hope that you can kind of get into the, to the swing of enjoying these stories kind of for the, the faster pace that they have. And it's, you know, it just kind of gets going and then it's over. That is my hope for you. Well, you know what? Who knows? Maybe I will be able to grow uh, more custom to the short storytelling in the future. Uh, but we will be back here next week talking more Back to the Future, the comics, the comic books series. And I can't wait. I can't wait, Norm, till we get to Back to the Future Part 3 because I'm like literally giddy to talk about this movie because I rewatched it the other day and I think that this might be my favorite. So I'm really excited to get to Back to the Future Part 3 here all coming up soon on Season 3 of Back to the Future, the podcast. Until then... I'm Brad Gilmore. He's Norman Benford. We are your friends in time, and we will see you in the future. The Brad Gilmore Show On Demand is meant for entertainment purposes only. It does not mean to infringe on any copyrights of Back to the Future, its characters, its audio clips, or its music. Hope to see you again in the future. What have you done now?